Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the How to Be Wise podcast. I'm your host, Amelia, and in this episode of season four, I had the opportunity to interview Courtney Jones. She's an amazing engineer who's worked in the energy industry for over 30 years, and she has some really great insights on internships and honestly perseverance. So I hope you enjoy. I am super excited for this episode today because Courtney actually works in industry. So Courtney, did you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. And good morning or good afternoon to everyone who is listening to this podcast. So my name is Courtney Jones, and I currently am the general manager for Canaport LNG, which is Canaport Liquefied Natural Gas. It's a plant in New Brunswick. A um, little bit about my background. Um, I graduated from university a long, long time ago and have about 30 years in the oil and gas industry. My degree was in chemical engineering with a minor in chemistry. And I and my husband, who's also a chemical engineer, have been fortunate enough to move really around the world and do some fabulous assignments in some great locations. We're also very happily married and have two um, children in university as well. It, I'm excited to talk about kind of my experiences and, you know, it hasn't always been perfect, but I think one of the themes you'll hear coming out from me today is to take whatever opportunity you're given, even if you don't think it's an opportunity and make the best out of it, because you can always learn something. Oh, absolutely. So did you maybe want to tell our listeners what's like a typical day for you at Canaport? Sure. So we start quite early. So I think, you know, just for the listeners who probably are not completely familiar with LNG, um, you know, in the energy world, one of the cleaner pieces of energy is what we call liquefied natural gas. And so what our plant does is we are located in St. John, New Brunswick, which is very, very east, right on the water. And very, very large um, cargo ships of liquefied natural gas are brought in. We offload those ships. It is stored in three very big tanks. And then our plant supplies about 80% of the Northeast market, including the Boston area. So we then regasify this very cold liquefied gas and send it down the pipeline on a daily basis for energy needs. Um, so my day basically is I, I get to work quite early. I'm usually there by about 6 a.m. And we start with a morning meeting to understand, because it's 24-hour operations, if there were any upsets overnight. Um, you know, our theme is we've got to be reliable. You know, we can't have a brownout or a blackout happening in the Boston area or really anywhere else, um, because then people are not going to buy our gas if we can't, you know, deliver that with all confidence. Can you uh, interject here? Sure. What is a brownout or a blackout, actually? Um, that is when the local power companies are not able to produce electricity for the consumers oh, okay. and the industry. So a brownout is more, they're getting inconsistent supply. So, you know, things are going, the power needs are going up and down and you may see, you know, some homes in certain geographic areas or some industry not have enough power to have electricity. A blackout is when an area is completely black. That means that, you know, no power is flowing anywhere. And as we all know, that can be catastrophic if it's bitter cold yeah. or, um, you know, if you're in the South, if it's incredibly hot, it also can cause huge damage um, up and down manufacturing plants or anything else. So it's, it's quite critical to make sure that you have that consistent supply. And we're very fortunate because we're the only plant of its kind in North America. And um, it enables us, you know, to be a big player, but it also, you know, puts some stress as well. And so we do have quite a bit of redundancy in the plant for that. 
Yeah. But really my day is just ensuring, I mean, I've got a great team and, you know, I'm, I'm the first to say that they can run the plant without me, but, um, I, you know, we make sure that all aspects from <clears throat> the engineering side, the operation side and the maintenance side are all intact. We also have, you know, a commercial um, element that we have to be selling that gas. You know, we're not doing this for free. So we have a marketing group that's out there marketing our gas to the various utilities up and down the Northeast Coast. And there's, you know, also I would say the support functions who are equally as important around legal, whether that's supply chain, really the whole aspect of running the business. We're owned by two different companies, so there are always partner issues to deal with. And, you know, sometimes the partners are aligned, sometimes they're not. But I would say, you know, my team manages the day-to-day operations, and I'm more the the person that's either diffusing conflicts or being the communicator, whether that, that be we call it up the chain to our owners, the two companies that own us, or, you know, down the chain because our biggest asset really is our employee base. So does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, I think so. That's really interesting. Um, So obviously you have this chemical engineering degree. And as you were saying, it sounds like you do a lot of interpersonal work as well. So can you describe a bit more of this overlap between like the STEM skills you have to utilize at your work and then also these business kind of skills? Certainly. So um, you know, absolutely. And it probably the best way to summarize it and, you know, tell me if I get too winded on my answer is, you know, when you're coming out of university, I think your first few roles are very focused on what you learned in university and how to apply that in the real world. So certainly for years, I did very technical roles, whether that be process engineering, project engineering, pipeline engineering. Um, And then as my career progressed and my, I guess, skill base expanded or maybe experience expanded, um, I, well, I partially chose and partially it was chosen for me and I can get to that later, but I moved a little bit more into the business side as well. And um, so now um, certainly, you know, I can go in our control room and I think I can do a pretty decent job of talking temps, pressures, operations and things like that, but I'm much more business focused now um, just because I've got a great technical staff who do the true engineering. So, you know, certainly I, you know, depending on the the cost or the severity of any investment, I, I approve that but I rarely am doing the core engineering now. Um, I've got great people who probably do it better than I do anyway. And so it's more, they will present proposals to me. They'll present, you know, a a technical proposal with an economic um, justification. And I, you know, I certainly understand what they're presenting, but I no longer am doing the true engineering. I'm enabling them to tell me what they've done and ask questions, probe, tell them if I don't agree with a certain outcome they're proposing. So it's, it's, it's just kind of a different, um, a different lens now. And I think that just comes with years of experience. Oh, absolutely. I really like how you describe that as like a different lens that you're looking through where you, you're understanding more than one aspect of the work you do, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And I joke that my engineers are probably better engineers than I was anyway. So. <laughs> okay. Um, so why don't we go in a bit more into it? So what, what made you choose um, the STEM fields and specifically in this case, you know, engineering? Yeah, so I was pretty naive going into university as to what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I, I think the universities and the high schools do a better job of that these days. Um, but I um, grew up with a single mother. I needed a scholarship. 
and I was pretty decent in, or maybe I'm better than decent in math and science. And so my chemistry teacher in high school said, you should go into engineering. And I'll be completely honest, I had no clue what an engineer did, um, nor did I really even ask. But she said, if you go into engineering, not only will you get a good starting salary, but you can probably get a good scholarship. And, you know, being very short-term focused, um, I needed a scholarship. So I purely picked it. Um, I, I picked engineering because I was able to get a scholarship back then, especially as a female, it was, I think, much easier. And then secondly, I picked chemical because chemical and my chemistry teacher seemed you know, kind of one in the same. So um, I wish I had a more dramatic story as to, you know, some incredible role model that led me there. But it was really, I, I needed to have, find a way to fund my university. And that's what I chose. Well, I'll, it's pretty fair, though, because I think that's still a common theme that people will experience. And mm -hmm. um, I know some other people, I'm sure we've talked to their high school teachers were their role models, right? So it's really interesting mm -hmm. to see this even cross-generational um, similarities. Yes. Yes. Okay. And it, what's something, I guess, that you got into STEM, you didn't know as much. Did you come to love certain aspects of it once you were doing it? I did. I mean, I, it was interesting to me. Um, so, you know, I continue to this day to love math and science. And, you know, as, as I mentioned with my, with my mother in the hospital, I mean, I'm, I'm all about the numbers, um, you know, mm -hmm. what, you know, what's her blood ox doing, those things. Um, so yeah, I continued to love those elements of it. Um, but it did have its ups and downs. You know, again, I, I was naive going in. And I, after my first year of university, was able to land this phenomenal internship money-wise um, that, of course, I had to take because, again, I needed funding in South Texas, of all places. And um, I was told I was going to be a roustabout in a gas plant. Well, again, single mom, roustabout in a gas, no clue what that meant. So I drive my, you know, car down to South Texas and find a garage apartment to live in and was horrified when I arrive at this gas plant and they hand me a tool belt and then <laughs> put on a flame retardant jumpsuit. And I learned very quickly that I'm going to be out, you know, changing spark plugs and compressors. Oh, and, wow. Um, Proper like field that. work. <laughs> True field work. And, you know, they had to, I'm sure they were laughing at me. They had to teach me, you know, you've probably heard the phrase righty tidy lefty Lucy when you're undoing yeah. bolts and screws because I had no clue what I was doing. I'm sure I was a liability and they're going, God, get her through the summer and out. But that did teach me at the time that, um, you know, I needed more of a skill set than that because I couldn't do that the rest of my life. But it also taught me you know, an appreciation for, you know, every person that contributes to that, um, that value chain of that piece of hydrocarbon. So, um, you know, the people out there, as, as we all say now, the closer you are to, you know, the, the hydrocarbon molecule, the more important you are, you know, so I was out with these folks making sure that, you know, um, pipelines didn't have leaks, that the plant continued to process, um, and you needed that communication along the way. So I hope that, you know, that stair step, as much as I hated that summer, um, you know, it taught me a lot around communication and around appreciating the role every single person plays when you're working with them, whether it's, you know, somebody who has come up through the job ranks purely with training and no formal education to those folks that have, you know, masters and doctorate degrees and maybe very, very educationally versed but not, um, you know, versed in working with um, machinery. 
So, um, so it did teach me something, but I would say it was dreadful. And I remember that summer going, what am I doing? I can't do engineering. You know, I, this is horrible. Um, you know, I was sweating in this flame retardant suit and, um, you know, it was, so but I, I say that, and as I alluded to earlier, I think, you know, when folks think about their careers and where it takes them, you have to figure out, even if something is bad or you're not enjoying it, or it wasn't what you expected, you have to find a way to um, extract value out of that or something that can make you a more well-rounded or, and I say a better person, but just somewhat, something that'll give you more experience as you develop yourself. Absolutely. Right. Like knowing you didn't like something is data in itself where it's like, okay, if I don't Mm -hmm. like this, what exact aspects was I struggling with and how can I put myself in a situation that I'm actually going to enjoy a bit more? So it's Mm -hmm. exactly what you said. You just, even a bad experience, it's an experience that you learn from, right? Right. So, um, you were saying there weren't as many females entering the um, kind of STEM and especially engineering field um, when you were attending post-secondary. So what were, did you experience um, any barriers in that, um, especially being in this very male dominated field, which it still to a degree is today? You know, I actually never did. And, okay. you know, I, I hear from colleagues Um, stories of, you know, oh, they were discriminated against, you know, it was tough. I always had a bunch of cheerleaders. Um, You know, I had had some weird experiences. Um, You know, one of my first times on an offshore platform, it was offshore Louisiana, and we went out for a week to, um, to work. And um, back then, they they actually didn't have sleeping quarters that were segregated between male and female. So I was in the sleeping room, triple tiered bunk beds, all men and Courtney. And, you know, it was almost, um, I'm going to date myself here, but like the Waltons where, you know, at night we're saying, you know, goodbye, Jim Bob, goodbye, or goodbye, good night. Um, you know, a, a little weird. You would never do that now. A little but, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> exactly. On that same offshore platform, of course, there was not, you know, a male and a female yeah. restroom. So I had this sign that I would have to hang on the restroom door when I was in there so that nobody would come in. Um, yeah. You know, it, you just kind of do it. Uh, that would never happen now. But, you know, that was certainly the earlier days that um, uh, it just wasn't re- it wasn't common. So, you know, these older facilities were not designed for that. Um, I do think, you know, going or uh, having my early career in the States and being on the U.S. payroll, you know, back then again, maternity leaves were were not nearly as as long as they are now on were, you know, somewhat looked down upon that, you know, if you were focusing on your baby instead of focusing on your career, um, you know, disappointing back then. But I think that's all been resolved quite a bit. I mean, I, you know, I feel very good when our folks at Canaport take their maternity leaves because truly, you know, children are important. It's certainly the most important thing I've ever done. And companies need to find a way to, to make that work and make that balance work. Absolutely. So uh, kind of on that note, then, have you noticed since from when you were in school, some significant changes in both industry and even maybe education um, to kind of promote and accommodate women in the STEM fields? I think so. I mean, I think um, if we start first with education, Mm -hmm. there's just a lot more um, females out there. So, you know, you're not 
probably plowing your own, you know, trail, so to speak, like you might have been several years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's when I was there, I was very active in SWE, Society of Women Engineers. I don't know if that's um, up in Canada, Um, but that was probably the only women's organization. And now I know there are several because I, you know, have had the opportunity to speak at several of them. I really like that. I also think there's a nice balance because you also don't, you know, I'm a firm believer that just because we're female, we shouldn't get an easier path than being male. So I think it it also should be equal and you pick the best candidates no matter whether they're male or female. Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of um, support out there now and programs out there just to make um, people as well-trained and as well-focused as possible. Um, you know, I think, and you guys can tell me if you experienced this, but I, when I started university, we had that horrible professor that would say, look to the left, look to the right, you know, these these people may not graduate with you. Well, you know, how demoralizing is that? Um, yeah. Now, I think universities, for the most part, and you guys can tell me if it's different, but they want to escort you through that educational journey and they want you to graduate and they want you to be successful because A, they probably want donations if you're really wealthy coming back. But B, it, you know, it only helps the university. So I think the universities have really changed their thinking in that. And then I think companies building on that, um, really believe that, you know, the best assets out there are their employees and they have got to set them up for success, whether that be training, flexible work hours, um, you know, leave of absence as needed, you know, as long as it's justified. Um, so I, I have been just incredibly um, impressed with the current company I work with. And then, you know, certainly what I hear is going on in industry as far as flexibility and developing people. Yeah, what can a port, right? Mm-hmm. What's some, do they do any particular outreach for um, women in STEM? We do. So we are very connected with University of New Brunswick um, and then also Dalhousie. And okay. that's just because geographically, yeah, they're those nearby. are the two closest engineering schools. And so um, we do offer internships. Now, I'll be honest, we did not this last year, obviously, because of COVID. And yeah. Um, it's very tough when you work at a plant to offer a remote internship when that person has never been in the plant. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, hard enough, I think, to find meaningful work for internships anyway. And it just, we just didn't think we could, um, you know, deliver a a good internship for somebody. And we certainly don't want to waste their time. Um, But normally we do that. We support three different scholarships at UNB and two scholarships at Dalhousie. Again, for um, five for women in total, and then five for kind of the best candidate, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Um, And then I've been fortunate enough to speak at some career fairs, um, two different ones in the region as well, which, um, you know, I don't know if that helped or hindered, hopefully helped, but just talking again about my experience and, um, you know, where my career has taken me, because as I said, it's, it's not always been directly up. I mean, sometimes you make some sidesteps, sometimes you may make a a step back for any given reason. And I think that's absolutely I, I think that's a common trend um, I've also been noticing with um, even previous podcasts is, you know, life's for, for a lot of people, it's not that straight linear line where you wake up, you know, you're doing and it goes right. <laughs> like we experience barriers, we experience maybe setbacks or we try something one day and it opens our eyes to this new world of possibilities that we never even thought of. And then like paths truly, um, for the most part, I think are very winding. Mm-hmm. I guess, have you experienced any setbacks um, in that regard where you thought you were going to go one way and now it's, 
you know, turned down a different route? For sure. And um, yeah, excellent question. And, you know, the setbacks that I've had, um, the underlying reason has been, as I mentioned it at the beginning of this podcast, my husband and I are both chemical engineers and we actually Mm -hmm. met at work. And um, we left the States in Mm -hmm. 2000 um, to move to Asia, working for the same company. We're moving around the world to do jobs. Somebody is always the leader and somebody is always the follower. And, you know, it is hard at different locations to both land excellent roles. So I would say there has been many times that um, throughout my career that I took a job that I thought was not a great job. potentially a step back, um, but I took it so I could stay gainfully employed and, you know, wasn't always happy about it, but just happy to have a job. And, you know, as I look back now, um, the emotions I had, while valid, were probably ones that, you know, I, as I got older, they minimized a bit, but, you know, it's back to, you can always learn something, always, and no, no job is ever perfect. And you're always going to do work in your job that you love, but most likely you're going to have some, you know, call it office work that you may not love. And that's yeah. all part of working. So, you know, when I look back, it's been great, but I, I can remember if I think specific roles and specific moves that we made, you know, my husband would have this, in my mind, this phenomenal job and I would have this so-so job. Maybe yeah. the next move we'd switch the other, you know, the other way, but we yeah. made it work. Um, and it's all you know, about compromise, is, right? is and what you want, you know, so, um, you know, because we could have gone back to headquarters in Houston, Texas, and probably both had a, an even more illustrious career, you know, moving up the corporate ranks, but we chose instead to have a, you know, overarching experience with our kids of moving around the world. Well, yeah, like you're going to travel to some great places. And I'm a firm believer that it's really eye-opening to see these different parts of the world. Cause it's like, if you're in the same place, it's the same kind of bubble and you don't know necessarily what's out there until you go, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so, exactly. Yeah. So, and so tr- navigating a bit more to this, I guess, personal side, um, could you kind of explain to us your work-life balance, you know, how you manage that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's another good point is, you know, one of the realizations that I had to come to, and it probably took me way long, way too long to come to it, mm-hmm. is you know, you can certainly, especially as a female, you know, have a family and have a career, but I think it, you have to accept that you can't be great at everything at the same time. And, okay. you know, something always, something always gives, I mean, maybe some super female could, but I could <laughs> not. And, um, you know, something always has to give. And I will say, I've probably made some unfortunate decisions where I prioritized in the past, my career over my kids. There are Mm -hmm. other times I prioritize my kids over, you know, my career. Um, I I still believe family is everything. And I regret some earlier decisions that I made where I I may not have prioritized it that way. But I think it's just coming to the acceptance that sometimes it's okay to just meet expectations. Um, I, I I, I strived early on in my career to always get that that top ranking or that top appraisal to always have, we called it exceeded expectations. And, you know, you can run yourself ragged if you do that. And, you know, it, it, it really is accepting that it's, you know, it's okay sometimes to, to just be okay, you know, to deliver the work that you've been asked to do, deliver it well, for sure. You know, I mean, yeah. and that, you know, sometimes 
your body can't go that extra mile everywhere. And that's and every when, single time. Exactly. And it, you know, it took me a while for that. And, and I try to instill, um, I have a, the daughter I referenced who's about to graduate with a degree in engineering in May. Oh. And, um, we, you know, we've talked a lot about that and, you know, she's, I think she understands where I was coming from a bit more, you know, earlier on as well, but it's, it's really all about balance and it, you know, there are days that you may work a 15 hour day at work, but then, you know, take a day off as soon as you can after that to balance it back out. Um, and I think, you know, nobody should expect to only work a 40 hour work week in today's times. Nobody should, um, yeah. but it should have, it should have and flow. I mean, if you are consistently working 60 hours a week, either, you know, it's a totally inefficient way that you're working or, um, more personnel is needed to work with you. And, and then that's all about communication. You know, you don't want to be superwoman. You want to communicate with your boss and up the line mm-hmm. and say, you know, this is not going to sustainably work. How do we either take something off my plate or, you know, enable me to get more assistance? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting to hear you say that because that exact, um, I think it's analogy of ebbing and flowing. Um, We talked about with some of the um, soon to graduate female engineers um, who are our president and vice presidents. And so that's fascinating where I think there's a bit more of this um, self-awareness now where um, people can't do everything. And it is, I think we're slowly in society moving towards this concept of like, it's, as you said, it's, I love that. It's okay to meet expectations sometimes. Mm-hmm. It is. And, you know, and I, I always tell my employees, you know, communicate, communicate, communicate. Yeah. You know, I, I certainly have little forgiveness if a deadline is missed and I'm caught off guard. But if you come to me, you know, with enough time that we can readjust the course, I'm, I believe, very understanding on you know, uh, let's, let's readjust the deadline or let's find a way to still meet that deadline with additional help, but it's all about communication. And I, I do sometimes think extremely technical people don't communicate that well. And so I, you know, I always tell people, just talk to me, you know, I'm pretty human. Um, and I think (laughs) I'm, I, I think I'm fairly understanding, but you know, don't catch me off guard, you know, tell me in advance. Yeah. So that's exciting, though, with your your daughter go, graduating soon from a similar engineering program. Do you maybe see parts of yourself in her already? I do, good and bad. <laughs> but it, um, no, she's um, I, I, she's going to do great, and I could not be more proud of the work, like all of you, um, put into your degrees. I mean, you know, it's it's huge, and it's it's stressful and it's emotional and, you know, it's not easy. So yeah, we're, we're incredibly excited to see where this takes us. Oh, well, she's had you as a great role model, I'm sure. Um, so one, I guess, I guess this could also apply to your daughter, your daughter. What's one piece of advice you'd have for maybe both aspiring engineers in particular, or also just other women in the STEM fields? I would say take every day and every experience you have and just find a way to continue to develop yourself. Um, And you'll have some roadblocks along the way, but you have to navigate through those. That is life. Um, But to just take deep breaths and enjoy the ride. I mean, I would, had had I been asked in, you know, 1991 when I graduated from university that I would be doing a role in New Brunswick, 
I mean, I would have no fathom of that. I'm not even sure I could have said New Brunswick was a province at that time growing up in Oklahoma. Um, and I certainly would have, wouldn't have said that our son would be born in Singapore and that we would have this just oh, wow. incredibly great experience, you know, moving around. Um, so I would say, you know, take each opportunity um, and make the best of it. And even when you think something is not an opportunity, find a way to create some opportunity within that. That's fantastic. So as you said, you traveled a lot. Is one of those places you visited have a particular place in your heart? You know, they've all been different and they've all been yeah. good. I mean, we loved living in Asia. We were there, I think, approximately six years in some locations. Um, just fabulous. And we also enjoyed Europe and um, we've really, really enjoyed Canada. So it's all, you know, they've all given us different character building situations. I mean, you know, oh, I love none that. of those places... Yeah. None of those places are beds of roses all the time. Um, but again, you know, you you figure out how to how to navigate through it, how to appreciate local cultures, mm-hmm. and um, you know, really how to to grow in you know both personal and professional lives. So so it's been you know really really good overall. Though you know, again, there are always peaks and valleys. Absolutely. And I guess kind of on the topic of peaks and valleys, when you when you do find yourself kind of getting overwhelmed with work, this has been another topic we've um, discussed in the past. Do you have certain like um, methods for doing self-care? Do you have certain like in the last episode we discussed non-negotiables of things you make sure to obtain? Like um, I know one of mine is sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good question. And I think the older I get, the worse of, of a sleeper I become, unfortunately. But it, um, <clears throat> I mean, for me now, my family will always come first. And mm-hmm. um, again, you know, that that is a regret in the past that I, you know, I can't change. And so non-negotiables for me are, um, I will always be treated with respect. And if I'm not treated with respect, I will call that person out on it immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, subsequently, they should expect that from me. And I would fully, I, I tell my staff and anybody else, um, you know, down the down and up the organizational charts within our company, um, you know, tell me if there is something I'm doing or saying that is not enabling you to perform your role to the utmost extent. You know, is there is there a phrase I'm using or something else that that doesn't work for you? Um, you know, a great example is um, I actually um, work up the ladder with a company headquartered out of called Repsol, headquartered out of Spain. One okay. of our owners for Canaport. So my direct boss is actually located in Madrid. And um, when I started working for Repsol, because I used to work for a Canadian oil and gas company called Talisman that Repsol bought. Okay. Um, when Spanish people talk in English, if they have questions or concerns, their immediate sentence to you is, I have doubts about your work. Well, you know, from a, an English speaker, for somebody to say they have doubts about your work, you know, it can be debilitating. You know, you're yeah. like, you don't trust me, you don't. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's what we, we talisman folks in Calgary had to say to our Spanish, you know, new owners you can't say that you, you know, it, it's debilitating. And of course they didn't know that, like, you know, that was their yeah. way of articulating that they had questions or things like that. So it really, again, is, you know, that open and honest communication so that, that you can be the best you can be. Oh, absolutely. And it's very interesting with the cross-cultural um, differences and the connotations mm-hmm. of words. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
I guess the next thing I'd want to navigate into that I've been really looking forward to asking you, seeing as I'm a bit of an environmental science student. So what's the, you know, it's coming. So with, uh, you do work for oil and gas industries. Um, what's the dialogue going on right now with the kind of pressing need for this shift to a carbon-free world? <laughs> okay, so I think that's an excellent question. And <clears throat> I always like when I get asked this because, <laughs> you know, I, I think a typical, and I'm not saying it's your view, but I think a typical view of the environmentalists is that the oil and gas companies are, you know, out promoting black oil and don't have respect for the environment. Right. and. You know, I, I, I think that has happened in the past for sure. But I will say, especially the major oil companies, the ones that have um, deep pockets and big research and development facilities are jumping on the bandwagon about moving to cleaner green energy. And, um, you know, you will see no matter what public company you look at, if you look at um, Repsol, of course, my company, if you look at the Chevrons of the world, the Exxons of the world, ConocoPhillips, I also spent years working for, um, they have committed huge amounts of investment dollars to okay. moving to cleaner energy. And that's anything, I mean, for example, Canaport is, is looking quite closely at, you know, can we produce economically hydrogen? You know, hydrogen's extremely clean. I think it is going to be one of the next big energy pieces of the world. Now, right now, um, you know, we can produce hydrogen um, in various spots, but, you know, the world needs to adapt to that as well. Right now, we don't have pipelines in the ground that can support mm -hmm. pure hydrogen going down. And a, you know, utility company does not have a, a generator that can accept hydrogen. So, you know, the part I would always say to folks is, you know, absolutely, the commitment is there. And you'll often read carbon neutral by 2050. You know, that tends to be a goal with a lot of companies and a lot of a lot of countries as well. But it's going to take us some time to economically get there. And so, you know, it can't happen overnight. Methanol is another big, you know, quite clean type of energy. Um, you hear a lot about um, battery cells. Well, methanol has mm -hmm. to do with biodiesel, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. Um, so a lot of various, I'd say, clean or green fuels or energy sources are in the works, but it's just, it's still going to take some time to move from research and development to something that is economical because, you know, you still have to have the supporting economics to do this. You can take government subsidies for sure, but those aren't going to exist forever. So it's, yeah. you know, moving any of those production lines into what would be a commercially viable green product. But make no doubt, I mean, these major oil and gas companies are on it. Um, and even, you know, even some of the pipeline companies are on it. I mean, everybody realizes that, you know, black oil is going to go away. It's getting more and more costly to extract black oil because it, you know, we're now having to go deeper in the seabed or, um, you know, other places. It's not just, the cheap oil that you know we had a hundred years ago. <clears throat> well, exactly. And doesn't that have to do with like the energy return on investment? I'm pretty sure yes. where that has been declining over the years. Yes, absolutely. And you know, you still have um, countries such as Saudi Arabia that can you know drill very short, very short or shallow wells, yeah. and get huge production. But you're not going to see that in the OECD countries because all of those call it easy targets have already been accessed, and so you know. Mm -hmm. you, it's getting more and more costly to produce that oil. So, yeah, absolutely. 
I think it's really important, as you were saying, sometimes there's the miscommunication between, you know, economists and environmentalists. And I think that that cross collaboration between the two of them, as you say, like we need to trans like the economy needs to change um, along with the companies. Right. What are some, I guess, does Canaport do any specific carbon offset initiatives? Like I know some companies, they have to meet a certain quota of like, let's say, planting trees to offset the carbon that's been produced. Do you guys have to qualify for any initiatives we like don't. that? Okay. Yeah, actually, so if you think about, we are a very clean natural gas stream. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so we have very low emissions. We're even well below the Canadian reporting oh, okay. for emissions. So we are probably one of the, and I say cleanest, cleanest and greenest <laughs> operations out there because yeah. we have one product. You know, we bring it in as a liquid and um, you know, there's a there's a lot of kit that does this, but if you can imagine, we bring it in as an ice cold liquid, we store it in a giant thermos of a tank um, with, you know, because we've got to keep it extremely cold or it will vaporize. And then we slowly warm it up, it changes to vapor and we send it down the pipeline. So we don't have waste. Um, it is, um, it's it's an incredibly um, green process. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so I guess along that line, do you, where would your environmental, like do you have environmental consultants working with you as well in your companies? How would it, like so a consultant have, differ from like an environmental engineer? Yeah. So um, the way we have grouped our organization, we have a group that's called HSSE and AI, and that's health, safety, security, environmental, and asset integrity. So I know that's a mouthful, but <laughs> um, that team is responsible really for all of our external reporting, our internal monitoring. Um, you know, when you think asset integrity and environment, you know, big issues happen in the environment when the integrity of your assets are bad, you know, because okay. then you get leaks or explosions or those things, you know, right. it, again, if asset integrity is bad, heaven forbid, you might hurt somebody. So that's the, yeah. the safety element or, uh, yeah, that's the, you know, safety element of it. So all of that is interrelated. So, you know, we, we manage our environmental footprint in-house, so to speak, by this team. Now, if there's a certain environmental study that would need to be done that we don't have the expertise for, we absolutely reach out to um, an environmental engineering group or a consulting group. And we needed, <clears throat> we needed to drill a new water well um, just this past year because the well we had been using as our water source was um, decreasing in volume. We were not getting the volume of water that we needed. Um, we don't have the ability in-house to find the next best water well and where we drill, how far deep we drill, <clears throat> you know, what is in that water, because of course we need to have fresh water. It can't be brackish. It can't be salt water um, to go through our plant. So, you know, anything like that, we will, we will reach externally because, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to have a, for instance, a water expert um, as an employee at Canaport, because I don't know what he and she would do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, right. So, so we will staff, you know, for our weaknesses on a short-term basis through consultants or engineering firms. Right. And it, it's interesting you're saying you can't use brackish uh, water or salt water. So I know that there's this um, issue with limiting limited freshwater going on. So is there is that like on your guys' radar for how you would adapt to that in the future? Yeah. So we recycle our water, um, okay. which is great. Um, and um, most of it, we recycle about 70%. Okay. And so, um, yes, we are very cognizant on not only that water, but um, the water that we return 
to the ocean as well. So we have um, a pond. And so after our water goes through its process, we have a pond that we are constantly monitoring for pH. We're monitoring it for particulate matter. We're monitoring it for any hydrocarbons, heaven forbid, because- And to make sure it doesn't like leak through the groundwater and stuff. Exactly. Okay. So um, so we're very, very on top of that. And as I said, I, I'm incredibly, yeah, that's great. Pr- incredibly proud <laughs> that we have such a small environmental footprint. Now it's, you know, make no mistake, it's not due to my- fantastic leadership that this is just the approach that the plan has taken and and we will continue to respect that. Absolutely. Correct me if we've gone through this again, but I guess are there any, apart from like the hydrocarbons, are there any other kind of advancements you're really excited for that you've read about like with scientific papers or engineering designs that are coming out, like new ways to maybe design pipelines, stuff like that? I mean, for me, probably the most exciting are, again, these these new cleaner fuels. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think hydrogen has an absolute role in the future, for sure. So would um, cars need to be adjusted to account for the hydrogen, or would it act as it regular fuels do? Um, yes, the car, the engine would need to be adjusted, um, okay. for sure. And I think what we'll see with hydrogen, and this is, is just my opinion, but you'll first start seeing um, it being blended into natural gas to change okay. the heating value. Um, I guess research, early research has said that you can blend five to eight percent into a natural gas stream and not alter the call it chemical mix enough that it would harm, you know, the end users facilities. So right. So that, that's been tested small scale. If that can work, I think you'll start seeing throughout Canada and the U.S. and the world this yeah. call it 5% blending. Um, then as you go, you know, kind of up the manufacturing side on hydrogen, eventually you're right. You'll see engines redesigned um, to take hydrogen. You'll see other, you know, other aspects of it being taken in because it's so clean and it's so, as you know, burnable. Um, but the other piece is it also can be very dangerous. You know, it's very combustible. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to go into that. And, um, you know, that also still needs to be figured out. Um, you know, I think biofuels will continue to have a role, uh, you know, for years, ethanol has been blended into gasoline. Um, mm-hmm. you know, now I think there is some argument that sometimes the the footprint to make ethanol is worse than not making ethanol right you know there's there's some efficiencies to be gained there um so i I think we'll see a a lot of just migration in that you know you hear now um electric cars they're you know great on emissions but when that battery finally dies what do we do with the battery you know it it is now um you know i think what i read is a big source of contention because you know you're creating this it's a different kind of waste Yeah. Yeah. And it's also the, you know, the extraction of the materials you need to make the batteries is another um, contentious point. Yeah. So, so I think that all just, you know, will come about, but it just can't happen tomorrow. So absolutely. Folks have to be patient and they have to educate themselves. I mean, you know, yeah. you, it, it, I always say if somebody's extremely opinionated, they need to make sure they have their facts in order before they form that opinion. Absolutely. And then I guess out of, again, pure interest. So with the potential internship opportunities that Canaport is going to be um, also advertising, what are some tips you have for people considering um, applying either f- tips for their resumes, tips for skill sets that they should be making sure they obtain, like working with um, data sets, that kind of thing? 
Mm-hmm. I would say, um, yes, your resume and your LinkedIn profile are um, obviously the first snapshot an employer sees of you, because normally they see that before they have a conversation. So, you know, make sure in that resume um, or CV, I guess, as we call it now, but make sure you really do a succinct job of describing yourself. And one of the biggest things I stress is I would rather have a well-rounded, balanced employee with a, you know, three point to a three point three grade point average who has participated in some extracurricular activities, has been diversified in their experience than somebody with a four point who does nothing but study. And so, you know, just as this organization that you're part of that's doing this podcast, you know, I encourage everybody, you know, pick a few activities. Yes, get involved in a few, you know, activities at your university, do a bit of community service, you know, show that you're a well-rounded individual. But on, you know, the flip side as well, I also don't like to see resumes or LinkedIn profiles where somebody's in 55 activities and, um, you know, has done every community service opportunity they've ever seen. Because to me, I don't believe they actually have the time to commit to all of those. So it almost yeah. looks like a resume filler. Yeah. For sure. No, that's great. And then do, does Canaport do like networking events um, as well for like outreach? Networking as far as career-wise? Yeah. Not really, not Canaport sponsored. We are very active in the community around community service. Okay, so we yeah, don't yeah. have a turnover. So out east there, yeah. We don't have a yeah. We don't have a, tur- a turnover of employees that's high enough to do you know big career yeah. networking events. We tend to have a very loyal workforce that stays with us. Oh, that's great. <laughs> okay, it has been really informational talking with you. I've enjoyed it immensely. Is there any kind of last words? of wisdom that you wanted to impart for women um, or really anyone in STEM um, before we finish off? Not at all. Um, The one thing I would say for each and every person listening is stay the course. And, you know, it is so tough to, to get it, to get through a degree in STEM, but, you know, if you stay the course, you'll have some ups and downs, but it'll be worth it in the end and to not hesitate to ask for help when you need it. Absolutely. I think that's that's a very important point because it's it's asking for help just gives you support systems to fall back on, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that you're not doing it alone. Okay. Well, I normally do like to finish these with a bit of a, a fun question. So do you have like a favorite book or favorite genres that you like to read in your free time? Oh, gosh. You know, I... Of that question, I have to say, I read so much at work that while I used to be an avid reader, I, I am not a huge reader now. I would say my passions outside of work, um, I absolutely love to travel mm-hmm. and I really, really enjoy eating wonderful meals, drinking, you know, delicious wines. And I think once I do retire, I will very much get into cooking. Oh, very nice. Is there like a particular meal that you want to master? I think right now, my family's favorite, and definitely my husband's and my favorite, um, is Indian cooking, East Indian Mm -hmm. cooking, and we absolutely love it. We can do a few dishes, but we would love to get better at that. That's fantastic. 
Well, thank you again so much for joining WISE this week for our podcast episode. And that concludes episode three. Thank you guys so much for tuning in once again to listen to me chat with some amazing women in STEM. I really appreciate it. And make sure to make your way over to HTBW Podcast on Instagram because on our Instagram, we do go through guest reveals and we will have a giveaway coming up. So get excited.